News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Questionable money and ties to real estate are issues that we have talked about. We've gotten fired up about it for years now here in BC. But it seems that other parts of Canada are waking up to this issue as well. Take Sam Cooper's latest investigative piece at globalnews.ca. It's about a billionaire Chinese oligarch who has a hand in about a billion and a half dollars in Toronto real estate developments. For more on the story, we are joined now by Sam Cooper. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Cindy. Okay, so tell me about this person. What do we know? It's an incredible story. His name is Xiao Jianhua. He's a, a Chinese-Canadian oligarch or tycoon, as you said. Uh, he obtained Canadian citizenship uh, around 2008 somehow, and I say somehow because uh, his backstory is he rose to prominence in China's uh, political and financial system after assisting the government uh, the, the People's Liberation Army with the atrocities in Tiananmen Square. As a student leader, he, uh, he helped the government at that time. And as the New York Times broke the story years ago, that shot him into the, the upper reaches of China, where business persons deal with uh, the elite Chinese Communist uh, Party families, including Xi Jinping. So in a nutshell, his family, his empire was doing business with China's leaders, and uh, it appears that he got involved in factional battles. That is, uh, some of Xi's enemies may have been doing more business with uh, Mr. Xiao than, uh, than, than with Xi's family. And in a nutshell, he disappeared from Hong Kong in 2017. That's the problem for the government of Canada because he has citizenship. We don't, uh, we don't know where he is. Uh, we don't even know if he's alive. There's been speculation on, on either side, whether he's uh, detained in Shanghai some have even speculated that he's not alive. So that brings us to the real estate. Sydney, uh, uh, what we found was we, just an incredible network of corporations run out of a Markham uh, mid-level office tower. And uh, it's very important because uh, they all have the same directors, yet their names are changing constantly. They've been investing uh, massively in Toronto. We estimated their developments are, could be valued at about $1.5 billion. And the way they invest is a problem because right in the center of these companies, somewhat hidden from the action, but controlling the purse strings are uh, Mr. Zhao's wife, who was his business partner, and her sister-in-law. And so it's very difficult to find out who was behind these investments in Toronto, but we did. Was sh- shocking that amount of money, Sam, can be tied to somebody who we sounds like, from what you described there, we know so little about. And yet what a huge investment we're talking about here. That's really the issue. Uh, Simi, you know, we've talked uh, many times about how casinos and underground banking fit into the equation so much in Vancouver. They're active in Toronto as well. But what's also active are uh, these corporations that we're talking about, whether they're numbered companies, private holding companies that even in court cases are described as investment vehicles for uh, wealthy people from China. But we don't exactly know how the money that is made in China and indeed uh, is, is tracked down by China's government uh, for accusations of money laundering, corruption, and financial crime. And yet somehow massive amounts of that money is getting into Canada. And again, you know, we've talked about underground banking, but the real issue in this story, uh, the experts told us, is we need a national beneficial 
ownership that is real ownership corporate registry so you can find out who really is holding the purse strings on these numbered shell companies or companies that change their names so often. And Sydney, I want to break a little news for your listeners today. There's a BC connection here. It, it speaks to the point I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to. We found that this company in Toronto claimed to have donated a million dollars to the BC Children's Hospital Foundation. So I called the I called the hospital foundation. They said, I'm sorry, we haven't got a donation from a company of that name. So it raises some issues. Uh, could it have been a, you know, a person behind the company or a company change name? Did the donation even occur? What we do know is these companies are trying to make inroads, obviously, uh, in BC real estate. It would seem to me that a million-dollar donation from anybody would be pretty significant. It's not like it's a $25 donation. Like That would be noticeable. It should be noticeable and it should be transparent. The company, uh, or rather a company that has changed its name a number of times, advertises it on its website as saying that these investors from China realize how important philanthropy is in Canada. That's great, but we can't find out if they really donated that money. And again, I think it speaks to transparency of how companies, uh, you know, advertise themselves, register themselves, who really owns them. Right. So this brings up a lot of questions then, Sam, about how is it that we allow people with money to just come in and invest these, you know, invest it here uh, in Toronto in particular without any real oversight about where this money is coming from and what kind of impact that could have on our local market? It does. And uh, uh, MP Michael Sean from uh the Toronto area, uh, a very, you know, a luminary conservative politician says that this speaks to a number of issues. It speaks to the need for a beneficial ownership registry. Uh, he told me that uh, Canada has not been very serious uh, in, in tracking down the money from very wealthy uh, tycoons or oligarchs from foreign countries. And he wasn't just speaking about China. He's sanctioned by China for his criticisms of that regime, but he's speaking about Russia He's speaking about Iran, and the Russian issue is very resonant right now. As we know, Canada, I can tell you, Simi, I'm looking into oligarchs, uh, especially in the Toronto area, from Russia, and these are people that, uh, that they're, not very, uh, they're not on the right side of the law, and yet they've been able to invest massive amounts into Canada's economy, and we're seeing uh, with, with this uh, tragedy in Ukraine, you know, how that can really cause a number of problems around the world and in Canada. So you mentioned that a lot of this is in Ontario. Uh, BC is setting up a beneficial ownership registry. Is there anything like that in Ontario? We don't have, uh, we don't have a national one, and that's the issue. Uh, where BC uh, is getting real estate beneficial ownership registry, but not a corporate registry that we know of now. So that's an issue that the Cullen Commission uh, that we've talked about is looking at, how these numbered companies, shell companies, are a big part of the issue. And the experts say to really make it a, you know, a cohesive defense, it needs to be nationwide so that uh, uh, nefarious actors inside or outside the country can't find the gaps in different provincial regulatory systems. Right. So in the meantime, then, from your story, you've got this person who is tied to $1.5 billion worth of real estate development, and you can't get a hold of him. Nobody knows who this person is or where he is. We don't know if he's alive. And I'm not uh, saying that to be alarmist. It, it's simply that for five years, Sydney, uh, uh, I've been tracking his story, an uh, extremely wealthy person with deep connections to uh, the Chinese People's Liberation Army, Xi Jinping's family. 
it, it's it's interesting to understand how he was, you know, got uh, such a financial and really citizenship foothold in Canada because it does raise those same concerns as Russian oligarchs. And uh, uh, we are we are trying to find out: uh, is he getting consular access? Because he is a Canadian, he should. But uh, the government is obviously very tight-lipped on this case. And our second story today sort of points to why uh, Minister Chrystia Freeland, who's now our Deputy Prime Minister back in 2017, said it's a very sensitive case. We're pursuing trade deals with China. So you can see how all kinds of what I would see as potentially conflicting and sensitive issues mm-hmm. roll into this case. Oh boy. Sam, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Penny. Appreciate your time as always. That is Sam Cooper, investigative journalist for Global News. His latest piece, you can read it online at globalnews.ca, where he lays out in, in great detail everything he was just talking about there. And there is a continuation of that as well. So check it out online at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Every day seems to bring more news about aid to Ukraine from countries all over the world, including Canada. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced even more on that. So let's find out what it is that Canada is sending and doing. Joining us now is Abigail Beeman, our Global National Political Correspondent. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Okay, so what is Canada doing? So this was an announcement uh, late yesterday afternoon by the Prime Minister and the Defence Minister about more lethal aid to Ukraine, specifically 100 anti-tank weapons systems uh, and upgraded ammunition in the form of 2,000 rockets. We don't know exactly when uh, that aid will be shipped, although we did get an update about the non-lethal aid, the $25 million in supplies announced Sunday. Uh, the Defence Minister there saying that one plane load of supplies uh, flew out on Monday with another one heading over later this week. Okay, so there's that going on. And also there's a lot of talk about refugees, obviously half a million people fleeing Ukraine. What is Canada doing on that front? So the immigration minister says Canada has already approved 4,000 applications for Ukrainians wishing to come to Canada. Uh, Sean Fraser are talking about how they were not caught off guard by this influx. They've been preparing for it for a month uh, and talking about uh, measures being taken to uh, make it easier for Ukrainians to come to Canada and also for Ukrainians already here to be able to stay longer. However, the big push from the opposition uh, in terms of the humanitarian element here is to remove the visa requirement temporarily for Ukrainians trying to come to Canada. The government has not moved on that front and, and won't, they've been asked about it a lot, won't really give any specifics as to why that they're saying that's not the best path forward right now. They say they're speaking with the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. They're working with provinces about the best way to move forward, uh, but won't say why, uh, why removing visas are, are off the table at this time. Okay. And how are they processing these refugees then? Obviously not in the capital, so they must be giving consular services somewhere else. Uh, yeah, that's right. And um, the immigration minister specifically mentioned um, uh, yesterday beefing up staff in Bucharest and in Vienna uh, in order to process these supplies. So so uh, beefing up the resources uh, elsewhere to help process these applications. Okay, that makes sense then. And what about the sanction situation here, Abigail, too? Because Canada, I know, has continually announced, you know, more and more sanctions. Uh, are these making a difference? 
According to the prime minister and deputy prime minister, they say absolutely they are. They point to the plunging record low ruble, uh, as well as the Russia having to close its stock market as evidence that these sanctions are having an impact. Uh, the latest round of sanctions announced by uh, Canada uh, yesterday and a number of its allies uh, involve uh, forbidding Canadian institutions from dealing with Russia's central bank. So essentially cutting off Russia's central bank. The goal there is to stop Russia from accessing the hundreds of billions of dollars it has in foreign currency around the world, uh, which it could use to prop up the ruble. So cutting uh, Russia off there. There's also the sanctions uh, or the ban on uh, crude oil that uh, the prime minister announced yesterday that uh, Canada intends to ban crude oil from Russia coming into Canada. Now, that's largely symbolic, uh, as even the environment minister said in the House that there hasn't been uh, Russian crude oil imported since 2019. All right. More to come on that. Abigail, thank you. Thank you. Abigail Beeman, our global national political correspondent, talking about all the ways that Canada is responding to the Ukraine situation. More to come on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about crime in Vancouver. We have heard so much about window smashing and random stranger attacks. It is really concerning. Five people attacked in one afternoon over the weekend, window smashing up 40% since 2019. I mean, these are visible signs of crime and assault that worry people, and that is understandable. It's also understandable to want your politicians to respond in some way, to show some leadership, to work together and say, we will fix this. So yesterday, we heard about how Vancouver City Councillors Lisa Dominato, uh, Sarah Kirby-Young and Rebecca Bly are going to be hosting a forum next week on the crime situation in Vancouver. They're going to have, you know, community members there can go and talk about this. They'll have a, a Vancouver Deputy Police Chief there to as well talk to the public about what they're doing and what's going on. Just a good example of, you know, getting some information out to the community. So our reporter, Janet Brown, reached out to the mayor's office, to Kennedy Stewart's office, to ask him if he would be attending. His response, the mayor, well, his person's response, his communications office response, the mayor doesn't tend to comment on the day-to-day -day work of others. The day-to-day -day work of others. Is that what this is? Because I mean, funny, I, I thought this was an issue that affected all Vancouverites, not just a few people on city council. Could he maybe learn something by going, hear from people that he wouldn't have heard from otherwise? Or because he didn't think of it first, he's not going to bother. This is what people greatly dislike about politics. The common cause should be reassuring the public about what is happening in their community. It shouldn't be, that's what they're doing, and I'm not interested in that. So what is this forum all about? What can we get from it? Well, Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young was on the Jill Bennett Show yesterday, and here's what she said. Open forum, so um, it's wide open for any member, residents of the members of the public to join. We're going to zero in on public safety. We have a panel, um, and I think that bring three great perspectives around what's a very broad issue. We have uh, Deputy Chief Howard Chow from the BPD. Uh, we have harm recovery um, and reduction, harm reduction advocate Guy Felicella. Um And then we also have Nolan Marshall, who is the new lead for the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association and can speak really to what's been happening in downtown. Um, so we are trying to zero in on public safety, but we really want to hear directly from residents about what their personal experiences are. 
um, either if they themselves have been victims of crime or their families, or just how they're feeling about safety in the city as a whole. Okay, that's refreshing, right? Hear from residents about how they're feeling. So why shouldn't other councillors and the mayor also think, yeah, you know what, this would be a good exercise. I would like to hear about this too. This is valuable input that you're getting from your residents, from the people who you would like to have vote for you this October, as a matter of fact. Now, Councillor Kirby Young also mentioned the story about the five women who were attacked by a single individual during a 40-minute crime spree in Vancouver that happened on Saturday afternoon. Five women so far that have been identified, and as a woman, um, and in a neighbourhood that I'm in often, um, it hits me to my core. And you could tell from the looks on neighbours' faces that people were looking around with a big sense of unease about the fact that it's it's everywhere in the city now, and they're starting to be concerned about going about their regular and their daily lives. And that's just not the city that we want to be. I think to your point around this case, it was a mental health issue. We're hearing that loud and clear. We have a huge gap, I think, in my opinion, in terms of mental health services. Um, We have a real gap in terms of supportive housing. But what I'm hearing loud and clear is that the public doesn't feel safe and we can't, it's not an, an either or public safety or investing more in mental health support. It's both. I'm glad somebody's hearing that loud and clear because that is exactly what the public is saying. They don't feel safe. Now, Vancouver police have said they have arrested a 38-year-old suspect in connection with that situation on Saturday. So there's more to come on that. And yes, they do believe that the person may have been in a state of psychosis. But as Sarah Kirby Young said there, it also is about making people feel safe as well as helping people who need you know, that mental health support. Now, there's a lot more to come on this, of course, with this forum. But when it comes to the causes of the crime increase, Councillor Lisa Dominato joined the Jazz Joe Hall show yesterday afternoon and mentioned the city does need more help from senior levels of government. I think that um, one of the things we talked about um, is cities across the country have seen more challenges during the pandemic. There's been more desperation. Um, and so we're not alone in this, um, but we've certainly talked about the for more of a police presence, patrols and neighborhoods and the benefits of that. Uh, but I also think we need to grapple uh, with um, some issues with respect to um, broader social supports. Um, we can't make assumptions uh, about what causes certain behaviors, but we do know uh, police speculated in the case of the, the Fairview incident that they believed the gentleman there was in a state of psychosis, whether that was drug induced or not, we don't know. Um, But I think that um, there needs to be a conversation around, um, do we have individuals um, right now who need better supports? And I think those supports need to come from our senior levels of government uh, when it comes to sort of health, whether it be in terms of mental health supports, whether it be in terms of addiction supports. Uh, But I I, I think it's a continuum. I, I don't think there's one simple solution to these issues. That's Councillor Lisa Dominato speaking on the Jazz Joe Hall show yesterday afternoon. So she, along with Councillors Rebecca Bly and Sarah Kirby Young, are going to be having this crime forum next week for residents in Vancouver to come to, to talk about their experience with this, how they're feeling in their neighbourhoods, and to hear from people in charge about what is going on, to hear from the Vancouver police, to hear from business people, essentially a chance to share stories and talk about what the issues are in their neighbourhood. As I mentioned, they, you know, the mayor was asked if the mayor would be attending, and his office said that the mayor doesn't tend to comment on the day-to-day work of others. <laughs> you know, if you're a politician and you're running for re-election, which Kennedy Stewart is, pretty sure you want to have a chat with your communications person about making sure you phrase that 
way better and showing some respect for the work that your fellow counselors are doing uh, to try to alleviate the concerns of residents out there. Now, that's something that Councillor Kirby Young also weighed in on when she talked about the the issues that Mayor Kennedy Stewart has had with the Vancouver Police Department. Well, first, I think it's important that people actually have a place to have that safe conversation. I think that people feel dismissed by this mayor and council. Um, and, you know, we've heard the mayor say, I don't feel safe in the city. And that's been cold comfort to people. I think that's really diminished and dismissed people's concerns. So the first thing I hear is that people are looking for a chance to have that form of that conversation. We want to hear from people what would make them um, feel more secure. Sometimes we hear, for example, that it's things like visible presence and more um, beat officers. Sometimes we hear it's around sort of a agreement that we do have those gaps in terms of supportive housing. And so we're looking for a number of tangible things to come out of this forum. One, to get a sense of what it is that will make people feel safe, that they want us to move forward. But also, I think, a real opportunity for collective advocacy across partners and across partnerships um, to senior levels of government and what those gaps are. I think working in tandem and working together makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that this mayor has really disenfranchised the police department and created a rift between the PD and the city of Vancouver. Um, and I think that we want to be compassionate and caring by bringing, you know, to the the harm perspective and the social issues, but what we don't want to do um, is not work collectively together, and that's really what the forum's about. Okay, if that's what the forum is about, wouldn't it be nice if all the councillors went, including the mayor, to say, this is a good opportunity for all of us to hear from residents and business people about what is going on. Unfortunately, it doesn't sound like that's going to be the case. What we do know is that three councillors are going to host it, uh, Sarah Kirby Young, Lisa Dominato, Rebecca Bly, and I'm sure residents will definitely sound off on what they're seeing happen. What needs to happen here, do you think, to make the crime situation improve so that people don't hear anymore about random stranger assaults, you know, as many as four to five a day, according to the VPD. What do you think needs to happen to improve the situation? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. So yeah, a lot of questions for Mayor Kennedy Stewart on this. And I should mention that he will be joining the Mike Smith show coming tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. But big question is, what are you, what is he prepared to do about this? Work cooperatively with other people, with other counselors to listen to residents and tackle this as a, as a team building issue? Or are we just going to hear a lot about how he thinks that he's done a lot already and, and, you know, the work is being done? I don't know. We'll find out. Mike Smith show tomorrow at 10.30. This is Mornings with Simi. I mean, heat dome, flooding, wildfires, you name it, BC has seen it this year. And we know that the costs of getting the province back up and running after each one of those situations was big. Well, multiply that across the country and you can get an idea of how much climate change is already starting to cost us. For more on that, we're joined now by Lori Daniels, who's a UBC forestry professor. And it's all about this report that just came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, Lori, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Do you think we underestimate how much climate change is already costing us? Um, I think it's been so buried in many, many factors that we haven't seen it really accumulating and having impacts, I think, until this year in British Columbia. That heat dome that you mentioned in June, it was the beginning of this cascade of effects that has impacted us, you know, from the heat and 600 people dying from that heat dome, from the, the intense heat at the end of the summer, 
to drying out our forests and the fires that sparked and burned all summer as we breathed in smoke and had to evacuate communities. And then the knock-on effect of those big rainfalls, the most intense low-pressure systems ever measured off our coast, bringing in those atmospheric rivers on top of those burnt landscapes, creating catastrophic flooding, affecting now our food supply, our transportation supplies. We are now experiencing what climate change has in store for us. Okay, so maybe here in BC we've come to realize that, but what about across the country? Well, I think we're finding it across the country as well. In fact, Alberta has had two of the the other costliest um, natural disturbances in Canadian history. The Horse River Fire, remember, in Fort McMurray in 2016, evacuated, you know, 80,000 people, you know, through literally burning flames to escape um, the flooding in Calgary and, and parts of Alberta. And as we move across the prairies, I have family in Winnipeg who are speaking this year about the temperature extremes that they've been experiencing, the extreme colds, the massive amounts of snow this year, the concerns about catastrophic flooding again this spring. And as we continue east across our country, they are also experiencing um, major floods and other natural disasters. So yes, we are, are experiencing it from coast to coast to coast. Are we experiencing it in terms of food production as well? I know there's been some concern about the seafood harvest out east as well. There has been. And so we've seen, obviously, um, over over many years, changes to the, the seafood on the east coast with the, the cod fishery and the like from overfishing. But also, we know now on top of that, there's um, climate change and other environmental change impacts there. We see shifts in the way that um, food production is occurring on the coast, and we've had to limit much of the, the ways that we do our fisheries, both on the, on the East Coast and here on the West Coast, where we've been concerned about native fisheries, um, the, the food stocks, um, the native species of salmon that we consume and other, other seafood. And so, yes, these, these things are catching up with us. Okay, so what are we doing about them, though? Well, that's a great question, and this is what the call from the, the um, this assessment report from the IPCC is again reiterating to us as you know citizens across the globe that climate change is affecting us. It's affecting nature, our lives, infrastructure, really the ability to meet basic human needs around the globe. So again, calling to all of us to make the changes um, that will will move us in a more adaptive direction. So we we absolutely must reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that we're emitting into the atmosphere. And that comes from things like burning fossil fuels in our vehicles. It comes from overconsumption and it comes from um, not being very efficient in our, our use of those kinds of resources. So making small choices, making choices in our lives to reduce our individual impacts, but also supporting initiatives um, in our communities and at the industry level and supporting government initiatives that say that we have to put the brakes on these types of emissions. I guess for a long time, Lori, people thought of this as something that was potentially going to happen down the line, right? But yeah. do, you, do you feel that in the last year or so, are average Canadians getting the message that, oh, okay, now I, now I see what we were talking about here? I hear that with the people with whom I collaborate, you know, here. I hear it from my students at UBC. I hear it with the communities or in the communities that I work with in, in the interior of British Columbia. You know, I spend much of, of the summer months in small communities in BC working with communities to look at the impacts of fire on their water resources, on the roads, on the forests that surround them, on their food supply from those forests if they're hunters or fishers. 
And certainly people are beginning to see directly the impacts onto them. And so making choices to, to begin to adapt. And the adaptation, it's not just, you know, reducing our greenhouse gases, although that's critical. We also have to rethink kind of how we're living in these environments and how we do so safely. So following um, guidelines for, for those of us who live or have property in fire-prone environments, you know, learning about those fire-smart choices so that we can reduce the amount of fuels in and around our homes and communities so that our homes and communities are resilient to fire, have a defensible space. So in places like Logan Lake, where they had done that work, when wildfire burned right up to the back doors of homes, they had created, you know, thinned out forests where they could set up sprinklers where firefighters could be and prevent the fire from spreading into town. That's an example of adapting to climate change by making choices to make that community more resilient to fire in a very fire-prone environment. I have heard more talk about that, Laurie, this year in terms of communities doing this kind of work than I have ever heard before. So is that message getting through? I hope so. You know, I think for all of us, it was heartbreaking to watch that fire burn through the community of Lytton, to hear the harrowing stories of people escaping, barely escaping with their lives, and tragically, two lives were lost in that fire. It was an abrupt event under extreme heat, very windy conditions, and and we simply saw the fire move through the community at a pace that none of us had envisioned was going to be possible in Canada. We've seen it on the news in places like California. We've seen it on the news in places like Colorado or in the Mediterranean in Europe. But I don't know that any of us anticipated it was going to happen like that here in BC. And I am sad to say that it could happen again in British Columbia because we're not yet adapted and resilient. So all of our communities need to think of the ways that we're vulnerable to these effects of climate change, fire, flooding, extreme events like that. And, and work towards making just small choices and then maintaining homes and properties, making the t- kinds of choices that make us more resilient as we move forward. What kind of choices, like we know about the wildfire situation, but in terms of the flooding, there seems to be, there hasn't been as much discussion about how we prevent something like that from happening again. Yeah, we haven't had as much discussion here in the lower mainland, but I know when we go east, you know, again, as we move into the interior where there's um, river systems that have flooded into communities through the Okanagan, for example, and as we move east across Canada again, there's lots of discussion about ways where you can kind of harden your house against flooding. So having things like sump pumps and and having um, the infrastructure kind of built into your house to be prepared for those types of floods. Um you know, we certainly learned, we saw the, the effects of catastrophic floods here here in B.C. Um, this fall. And, um, you know, maintaining some of that infrastructure, having multiple levels of government, municipalities and provincial governments working together, emergency response at the provincial and federal level, you know, making sure that we're doing the proactive, the work ahead of time mm-hmm. um, to make sure that dams and... Um, and much of the infrastructure that reduces the chance of flooding, it has to be properly maintained. It has to be upgraded as the new, um, as new technology becomes available. And it's always an upfront cost, which is always the limit to us. But we've now seen if we don't have that upfront cost, cost um, invested, we pay a big price after the fact. They talk about proactive measures, you know, that proactive yep. management and ounce of prevention is a pound of cure. It's working for us where we're, creating or using that proactive management approach, we're getting the benefits 
We oh. just have to be willing to invest in the proactive components now instead of reacting in an emergency later. Lori, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. Lori Daniels is a UBC forestry professor, and there were something like 330 authors of a summary report on this intergovernmental panel on climate change that came out yesterday that said essentially the impacts of climate change piling up faster and faster, and it's already costing us. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, kids always have a way of picking up what's going on, hearing what adults are listening to, hearing what adults are talking about. And no doubt a lot of adults are talking about what is going on in Ukraine right now. And so there are some suggestions out there about how to talk about this with your kids. For more on that, we're joined now by our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, actually, the Vancouver School Board sent out a notice to parents on how to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. And it's the first time I've ever seen anything like this come across my inbox from the school district. And it also made the gravity of the situation hit me differently, hit me in a different way. And I've been thinking about this topic, about, you know, how kids pick up on everything. And my husband and I, we won't watch news in front of the kids, but we, obviously I work in news and and we're concerned citizens, so we do talk about it. And we thought we were being stealth and careful. But then the other day, Simi, my five-year-old was telling our three-year-old that she wants to see Putin go to a very stinky jail. And I thought to myself, okay, I think I should probably talk talk to her about what's going on. She's obviously hearing things. And so um, I talked to Tyler Black, Dr. Tyler Black. He's a child psychiatrist. And he says the temptation to guard your kids from suffering in the world is natural. You want your kids to be happy, but they're hearing about it. So it's best to talk it out with them. They don't necessarily have all of the skills and information and even the ability to process the really difficult and concerning information uh, and emotions that come with war. Well, w- the war itself is the distressing part. Our job is, as parents and as, as adult caregivers is always to um, help our children process difficult things. Um, and you know, you don't want a child to be exposed to a concept like war without your ability to help them process it. So, you know, if it's going on in the world, they may pick up on it. You know, it might be a comment in a supermarket or something a friend says to another friend. Um, and, and so you are the gatekeeper for a lot of these things if you're a parent and uh, you want to be in on that conversation. You don't want to be excluded from it. This is, I guess, it's good practice for parents because this is always going to come up. There's always going to be some world event or something that happens that you're going to have to find a way to talk about it to your kids. Yeah, it's true. And and one of his tips was to give age-appropriate info, to be conscious of how old your kid is and, and what information to share based upon that. And the child psychiatrist said, keep it simple. I would say in very young kids, it's okay to keep it relatively basic. Um, you don't want to go to fantasy. Like I say, avoid the Santa principle. Like this isn't just, you know, bad things happening to bad, to bad people. When countries fight with each other, unfortunately, people get hurt and that can be really scary. That would be the type of thing that you could tell a child at any age. Or it's really normal to be afraid because when countries are fighting each other, they use their armies and that can be really scary. Or these are things that that children can understand, certainly in their media, in everything from Superman cartoons in the early 60s all the way through, we under, children understand conflict. So you don't need to avoid the fact that there's conflict. But obviously, the younger kids don't need to know the gory details of war. Um, as kids get older, 
you know, they might actually see or hear or think about really disturbing concepts. Like what does it mean for an innocent family to be bombed by accident, uh, by an, a country that's defending itself against something, you know, bad. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that can come up that are really detailed and nuanced. And the older a child is, the more appropriate it is to discuss those details with them. Yeah, Simi, another tip was to avoid the good guys versus bad guys narrative, because one of the reasons is you don't want a kid to pick up on an unintended stereotype. So Putin chose to invade an unprovoked country. But if you tell kids that Russians did that, they might actually take that to mean that their Russian friend is responsible for war in Ukraine. And Simi, you know how you once when you when you answer a question for a kid, depending on their age, it might turn into 20 questions. Well, a lot of the war details that a kid might want to know, they're not the ones that they need to know. So the psychiatrist said that a great tip, just a great tip about redirecting a kid who seems to be obsessing over the news of the war happening in Ukraine. I'd say at the younger ages, um, what kids might be doing when they're asking for more details is it's one of their versions of expressing worry. And what all children need to know is that as an adult, you'll do everything you can to keep them and your family safe. Um, And so a lot of that, you know, answering those questions might not actually help that central problem. So I might do a very quick pivot to a younger child with something like, oh, you're asking so many questions. I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to do everything I can to keep you safe. And it's my job as an adult to do that. And I'm, I'm so happy that I can do that for you. Um, going down the rabbit hole with various uh, questions that kids might answer, ask, might not actually be soothing the thing that they're dealing with, which is a fear, like what could happen to me? There's some really, that was a really good tip. Yeah, that's a really good tip too. I was thinking there's some really good advice in there, especially the part about the good guy, kind of bad guy situation too, because we say things like that so easily, not realizing how kids absorb that information. Sure. I remember when I was a kid and I thought Germans were bad. I, like I thought German people must be bad because I of what I've heard of the Holocaust. Um, so yes, being conscious of our language around kids, so important. And one thing that the Vancouver School District has told families to be aware of is media overload. Gosh, I think this tip is good for adults too. Just both from traditional media and the internet that you should talk to children about the importance of limiting their exposure to this coverage, especially for secondary students. Um, I remember when I was a teen and I consumed a lot of TV. I, I was a TV kid. I watched a lot of TV, a lot of news, and I wasn't ready to see a lot of the war images that came across my screen. Um, and if you don't process that with somebody, it's just uh, it can be traumatizing for kids. So talking to your older kids about media overload and making sure that they are not just uh, sitting in front of screens absorbing that all the time because um, images have a way of staying with people more so than than words can. Right. That is such important information. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Great advice there. Raji Sohal, our contributor, talking about how to talk about the situation in Ukraine with your kids and that the very important just about which words you use to talk about what is going on there. Kids are sponges, you know, and you know you can see them listening. Right? I, with my kids, I'd always used to see that when they were little. You'd be having a conversation with your significant other and you can kind of see out of the corner of your eye that, oh, they've stopped talking and they're paying attention to what you're saying. So you have to be very careful with how you talk about those issues at home with your kids. This is Mornings with Simi.
Hitting Russia where it hurts. That's been the point of all of these sanctions and punishments that countries all over the world are, are levying. In particular, uh, removing natural gas and oil, you know, imports to your country from Russia. That's been a big one. Doing that in Canada, though, would also hurt, you know, Canada. How? Well, it's brought up the topic of energy security. What do we need to do to make sure we are not reliant on places like Russia for natural gas, for oil? Well, joining us now is Kelly Kreiderman, a Globe Mail reporter based in Alberta, who has also been writing about this. Kelly, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning. How have these issues been, you know, addressed in Alberta? Because like, the, the price of crude oil <laughs> going up, that's got to be good news for Alberta. It is. It is good news for Alberta, for the economy, <clears throat> for the provincial provincial government. And this was happening before the conflict in Russia, of course, because there, the, you know, the price of the demand for oil as the world moves out of the pandemic stage, we hope, um, is really ramping up. And I think uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney startled a lot of people last week when he did call for sanctions on Russian oil. Uh, Russian oil and gas is the mainstay of that country's economy. And, and, and of course, we heard the news yesterday that Ottawa will um, not allow Russian oil to be imported into Canada. That's not really that significant. Um, Canada imported a little bit of Russian oil in 2019. That dropped off completely in 2020 with the pandemic and uh, the low demand for oil. Um, it's, it's, it's a bigger issue for countries like China, for the European Union, and even for the United States in some ways, which does import significant amounts of Russian oil and refined product to some uh, refineries in some regional areas of the United States. Is it possible, though, for Canada to say, OK, this is the time for us to have the discussion about being energy secure? I think that discussion is going on right now. It's an inevitable outcome because this war has forced the issue of how dependent the world is on oil and natural gas from Russia. Right now, even as the war has raged, natural gas shipments from Russia to Europe have gone up. In Germany, they get 60% of their natural gas imports uh, from Russia. It is, it's a big concern, and this has really made it come to a head. Right now, there's a international energy agency meeting uh, taking place right now to discuss how to, how to deal with uh, the, the Russian oil problem and how to, how to both punish but not disrupt global energy supplies too much. Because the problem is, if the world completely blocks Russia from exporting, prices will go up even higher than they are now. And that's what all governments are grappling with, that really difficult problem. Do you think this is something that we Western nations have been naive about, Kelly, uh, given that this is probably something that the regime in Russia has been cultivating for a long time, knowing the world is dependent on them? Well, I think you do have to ask the question if uh, oil demand wasn't as high as it is now and, and say oil prices were closer to $50 a barrel, whether Vladimir Putin would be, feel so bold about this. And I, I think you do have to ask that question. We have gone through... Um, a decade or two where there have been a lot of supplies of oil and natural gas and scarcity hasn't really been an issue. 
And now, for a whole host of reasons, we are seeing less availability while demand continues to increase. And, and there is a difficult discussion to be had about how quickly renewables can ramp up while oil and gas demand is still increasing. Do, so what do we need to do then to improve the situation so that Canada isn't reliant elsewhere? Again, I think, I think you're seeing the, the shape of things change very quickly. You know, uh, a lot of Western governments have been very focused on the urgency of the climate crisis for a long time, and now they're being forced to look at the issue of energy security. We saw an announcement from Germany on the weekend that kind of laid this out. Germany, a country that was moving very hard towards renewables, shutting down its nuclear plants, has found itself in this energy crisis and now is talking about ramping up liquefied natural gas imports and having its own strategic reserves of, of fuels and that is, you know, that's a discussion Canada also has to have. The U.S. is in a big discussion with other Western powers right now about releasing strategic reserves of fuel to blunt uh, the, the oil price increase. Canada doesn't have that option. We don't have any strategic reserves of oil. And I think, you know, in the coming days and weeks, that will become a bigger issue, too. How much domestic uh, production and we keep how much uh, whether we should have reserves and stockpiles and whether we should be reliant on other countries for our oil and natural gas. It's hard to have this discussion though, isn't it, Kelly? Because in the end, all these different industries like Canada's, you know, oil industry and, and Saudi Arabia and the United States, they're making a lot of money right now with the way prices are going. They are. And, and, you know, there's no two ways about that. They're also, limited in the amount of uh, production they can increase at this point. But it, it is a difficult discussion. It's political because some people, you know, the Biden administration, for instance, hasn't talked to in any major way oil producers about what needs to happen. They say basically they don't get any communication with the Biden administration. And that's because of the very strong climate stand Joe Biden and the Democrats have taken. But there is a problem if you're not talking to your domestic producers who will be relied upon to displace foreign oil at some point. And, and there, there has to be some kind of coordinated talks or plan to it all, from my point of view. Right. Also, it doesn't happen overnight. That's the other thing. We seem to agonize oh. over getting things done. And by the time we even start talking about this, we're talking years away from making it happen. Yes, no energy project happens overnight, whether you're talking about a pipeline or you're talking about a refinery or you're talking about an LNG export or regasification facility. And, you know, there is discussion about, you know, right now Europe is at the end of its winter. It will only need natural gas in a major way for a few more weeks. But what about next winter? What does that mean? Is, is Europe still going to be completely reliant or largely reliant on Russian supplies? That's a big question. And even in the discussion about renewables and other forms of, of, of energy to displace fossil fuels, none of those things are going to be ramped up quickly either. Right. So we still have a long ways to go as we grapple with this. Do you think, though, that because of what's happening, we are starting to have this discussion? Like, does it seem like it's different this time? It does. It does. I, I feel like the mood has shifted uh, markedly in the last uh, ten, two weeks in a major way, in the same way 
that we're talking about, you know, uh, increased defense spending and militarization of Germany, something, you know, which a lot of people would have been surprised about in, in past years. That is happening, too. And in the same way, we're going to go back to past decades in a way in talking about energy security in a way we haven't had to um, for a lot of years because everybody knew there was problems with Russia and using a lot of Russian oil and natural gas, that there was, there was a risk there. And what has happened now is that risk has come right to the doorstep. It's certainly come right to the doorstep for all those European countries. It certainly has. Um, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. You too. That's Kelly Kreiderman, Globe and Mail reporter based in Alberta. You can read her piece in the Globe and Mail newspaper talking about energy security and how it has now become as important as defense policy because of what we are seeing unfold in Ukraine and the impact that even having sanctions on Russia is going to have on all these other countries around the world, including and in particular Canada.